Good evening, everybody. Welcome to week three of our survey of the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible is an interesting collection of literature. You have historical narrative, going all the way back to the Genesis account of the creation of the world, the early families uh, that led up to the Semitic tribes, the people of Israel, Father Abraham, historical narrative. Then you have other bits of the Bible that are, uh, that are called like wisdom literature. So you have things like Job, uh, which is a bizarre thing to just read. You just read through it. It just kind of goes on. It takes a while to kind of get into the groove of it. You have Song of Solomon, which is, you know, strange in its own right. Funny story about Song of Solomon and this wisdom literature. When I was in Bible college, I had a, a, a professor who wanted to prank a fellow professor. And so he knew I was a bit of a cut-up. And so he said, Steve, during class today, will you just get up and start speaking in tongues or something like that? I just want to mess with this professor. And I said, well, I, I, we just had this, like, long debate in this class about the prophecy gifts and speaking in tongues. And I said, so I don't think I'll do that, but I'll think of something. And he goes, just think of something. I just want to throw something at him because he's such a straight-laced guy. This professor was like, no nonsense, right? And so uh, I made my plan. I had my little pocket Bible, my little pocket King James, which Song of Solomon reads especially beautifully in the King James. (laughs) And And so I picked one passage from Song of Solomon and at the right moment, about midway through the lecture, I put my hand up, Professor, I got a word from the Lord, which is already, you're already in dangerous territory right there, right? And I stood up and I started reading from Song of Solomon. It was like, oh, my dove, you hide your face in the cleft of the rock. I mean, it was just like, but, but I, I threw a little bit of like drama into it, you know? And, and, and so at some point I was like, I swung around this pole, you know, like dramatically out into the hallway and then I was down on one knee and, you know, I really gave it my, my best, you know, I, I had taken some, some acting electives in high school. And he just stood there, I mean, blank-faced. The class was unsure of what was going on. There's about 100 other students in there with me. And eventually I said, sorry, you know, professor, what's his name, put me up to it. And then it hit him, right? And he started laughing, and then everyone else started laughing. And then for weeks after this, people were coming up to me saying, Gompers, that was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. So you have strange wisdom literature like Song of Solomon, Job, Proverbs. Uh, then you have like the historical chronicle of this, this king did that and this king did that and he reigned for 20 years and he walked in the ways of his father and he did this and then the, this invading army came and they tore down the temple and this army came and they paid them off and then they hired the Egyptians, and, right? So there's these different types of literature in the Bible. What we find mostly in the New Testament is something called prose discourse, which is to say you don't have to read the narrative and then try to find the instruction that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. 
You don't have to read the wisdom literature and then connect it with the cross of Christ to see what's being, what wisdom, what instruction there is for you. No, in prose discourse, the instruction is right out front. You don't have to bend over backwards. You don't have to clamor around to find the meaning and the message and the, no, it's just, it's direct. Well, that's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We are in prose discourse language. We are in direct instruction language. We don't have to, and we won't tonight, go into uh, the, the depths uh, of, of deep thought and underlying meaning. Jesus is telling the people who are committed to him how their lives are to look, right? It's not complicated. It's very straightforward. And as we come into these topics tonight, they're very applicable because all of us, in one way or another, throughout our lives, will deal with or interact with these various temptations, either deep in our own sin struggle or as they affect us from the outside in as we rub arms with other sinners hopefully most of which are saved by grace. And so I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 5, if you haven't already turned there. Let's read the opening portion by way of introduction for tonight's portion of the Sermon on the Mount, remembering again that this is a massive sermon describing the lifestyle of those who belong to Jesus' kingdom. This instruction is offered to the convinced, to the repentant. This is not evangelistic. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we'll read just by way of introduction to verse 26. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word and the direct instruction uh, that you have recorded for us straight from the mouth of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Uh, Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and a will to obey that has been redeemed uh, by the shedding of your blood and the resurrection of your body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a, a, a segment I've titled Three Temptations. Three Temptations, Anger, Lust, and Promise Breaking. It extends tonight down through verse 37. The title implies temptations to indulge the fleshly appetite 
for the disciples of Jesus. Okay? So Jesus is confronting temptation that comes upon those who are repentant. It's very important that we understand that. This is not, uh, the audience is not the masses of the unconvinced. This is Jesus in discipleship saying, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. What did Jesus command? Well, here's part of it. Okay? This is the handbook, the instruction manual for the convinced. Now, I point this out as both a warning and a comfort. Every time we drive to and from Blowing Rock, I see this uh, billboard, and it has an 800 number on it, and it says, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. Call this number, right? And on one hand, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful someone would spend money to put on the advertising board the name of Jesus and the offer to call someone who will tell them who he is. Grateful. And on the other hand, I'm very angry. That's a terrible gospel message. If you want to have problems, if you want to struggle in this life, give your life to Jesus. And I promise you, your life will get markedly harder in some really key ways. So it's a warning. Just because you're committed to Christ and you're redeemed by his blood, temptation remains part of the Christian experience until the day we die. When we come to Christ, we are free from sin. We're free from sin's penalty. See, that's the key. Justified means legally innocent at the throne of God. You are free from the penalty of sin. You will not in eternity experience the judgment, the wrath of God that you deserve. In sanctification, we're being made free from sin's power. We're growing in Christ-likeness. We're being armed with the scriptures, armed with, as Jesus says, every time Satan tempted him, he shot back at him the word of God, which was committed to memory, buried in his heart. As such, we are being ever more free from the power and influence of sin over us, thanks be to God for sanctification. But it will not be until we are glorified in heaven with Jesus that we are free from sin's presence. I love those three words. I heard them shared by Alistair. It's penalty, power, presence. That's the progress of the Christian experience. Free from sin's power, or excuse me, free from sin's penalty, growing in freedom from sin's power, looking forward to freedom from sin's presence in glorification. But until then, until glorification, until we are with him in eternity, we fight. We fight. And so it's a warning. Jesus is giving instruction about temptation to his followers because his followers are still tempted. Now, it's also a word of comfort. Repentance from sin puts you in the fight against temptation. And so again, we should not be surprised that life is relatively peaceful when we're indulging sin 
while it's a struggle once we've repented and are pursuing holiness. The devil is happy to leave you alone unless you're pursuing holiness. And so this is a comfort because if you're struggling, if you're wrestling with temptation, then at least you're in the fight, right? If you don't think you sin, that's because you're giving in without a fight. 1 John 1, 8 if there's no conviction, if there's no struggle, there's probably no Jesus either, right? So you will be tempted, Jesus says, in anger. You will be tempted in lust. You will be tempted in oath or promise breaking. Jesus addressed it because this is the reality of walking in his footsteps on a sinful and fallen planet. To walk in his footsteps is to resist temptation. He resisted temptation. To follow him, to to Luke chapter 9, take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow him, you are to follow in the footsteps of resisting temptation. The good news is he did so without sin. He's our champion. Well, that brings us to the first area that Jesus says, expect to struggle with this one. Anger. If you're taking notes, first point, one word, anger. You have heard that it was said. If you look down the page, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, verse 31. It was also said, verse 34. Again, you have heard that it was said. Each time, Jesus is referring to both the law itself and the commentary on the law that the Jews adopted and developed over time. Sometimes called the Mishnah, sometimes there's reference to the Talmud. You're basically talking about 600 and I think it's 13, I get the math, 615 laws. 265 positive, 365 negative, something like that. Something 347 and 265, I think is what it is. But the laws, you have heard it said, the law says, but also you have heard it said in that the rabbis developed something like 1,500 additional regulations to explain how to keep the law. You have heard it said. Jesus is referring to this each time. And so we would do well to remember what we did, the distinction that we made last Wednesday. Jesus never violates the law of God, but he regularly broke what the Jewish leaders wrongly interpreted as the law. So he broke their traditions that they considered law. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Okay? So Jesus never broke the law. He broke their version of the law. Furthermore, we know that Jesus had a different interpretation of the Messiah from the Jewish teachers and the average citizen. So the question again is, whose version are we going to listen to? You have heard it said, or Jesus, God in the flesh, but I say to you. Okay, so that's the key. You've heard it said. Jesus is God. He is the author of the law. Four times in our text tonight, what Jesus does is he corrects an improperly understood aspect of what it means to obey God's moral law. This is what he's doing. He does so on two fronts. First, he challenges what it means to obey the command. You have heard it said, obey the command with your hand. I say, obey the command with your heart. 
So he challenges them on what it means to obey. Secondly, Jesus challenges the notion of a sinful man being able to acquire right standing with God through human obedience. My nose is so itchy, and I want to just go like, <laughs> but I'm standing in front of people, and you can't do that. You can do that. I can't do that. But if you keep, if you keep me doing this, I keep doing this, it's because I got this terrible itch, and it's like, you know, one of those that you really got to get in there after it, you know? But I can't. Not allowed. That would be wrong. So excuse me as you see me keep doing this. Jesus is challenging the notion that a sinful man can earn right standing with God by physical human obedience. You have heard it said, and you have kept these laws. And you think that by the keeping of these laws, the average Jew, that that, 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 that earns you right standing with God. What you're ignoring is the million and a half times that you violated just that one command in your mind, in your heart. See, what you don't understand is that God requires absolute perfection and the law was always meant to bring you to a place of desperation, to cry out for mercy, not so that you can walk up the steps of the ladder, if you will, and stand before God and said, I kept your law. That's not the goal. The goal of the law is to bring man to desperation. It's like David said, if the, oh Lord, if you don't pardon, there's no hope. See, even if you keep the law, the whole point, I have found a king, a man after my own heart. What is, what is in the heart of David? Well, he's a murderer and a conspirator and adulterer. How is that the heart of God? David's heart said, oh Lord, if you don't forgive, I have no hope. That's it. See, that was the point of the law. It was to bring us to that same point. And so in that, David displays the heart of God. He longs for his creatures to reach out for mercy. Now, regarding the matter of murder, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed because, for, God made man in his own image. Now, by this, God instituted the most final and severe consequence for the crime of murder. It doesn't say, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. And this is different from capital punishment for murder. It's different from just war theory. Over and over again, the Old Testament um, killing is justified in order to defend the defenseless again and again and again. Killing is justified to avenge the blood of another killed by a murderer. So it's not kill, it's murder. God-ordained capital punishment is the right consequence for murder. Therefore, a society that fails to exercise capital punishment for murder is foolish. But theologically speaking, the consequence for murder is death. And this is the point Jesus is making. The consequence for murder is death. Here, Jesus says now, but I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he goes on from there. Worthy of the fires of hell. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's saying everyone who has been angry in his heart with his brother is guilty and therefore deserving of the consequence of murder. Jesus pokes a hole here in the self-righteousness of the first century Pharisee and the 21st century good man. Good man. Many people today believe themselves to be, quote, pretty good. After all, I'm not a murderer, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many different, like, man-on-the-street interview things that I've seen, videos over the years. What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Do you believe in a heaven or a hell? Yeah, I think there's a heaven and a hell. It seems pretty reasonable. Well, should you go there? Well, yeah, I'm not a murderer, right? But Jesus redirects the thinking to the heart. If you've entertained hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You violated the spirit of the law. That is to say, you violated what the law is ultimately designed to accomplish. And that's to do what? To bring you to utter desperation. No one can say, after all, I'm not a murderer, because everyone has been angry in their heart. And therefore, everyone is deserving of the penalty of death. This is Jesus just reinterpreting the law. I like the way Sam Storms puts this. He says, the attitude is equally as important as the act. The attitude is equally important as the act. The first century Jew listening would say to themselves, who could possibly keep this level? Who could possibly meet that level? Where you're never even angry in your mind, never even angry in your heart at someone from the day you're born to the day you die. Who could possibly do that? I can keep my hand from striking someone else, but I, I can't keep my mind from being angry. Who could possibly do it? And if you will, friends, that's the point. That's the fork in the road of the gospel. Who can possibly keep such a strict regulation? And on the left-hand side, the, the, the response is, forget that. That's unreasonable. That's impossible. I'm just going to live my life and hope that it all turns out. And on, and on the right is the heart of desperation that says, oh God, if you don't forgive, I have no hope. You see, that's the gospel. It brings you to the fork of desperation. And on one side, you're going to stand on your own two feet, self-righteousness. And on the other side, you're going to humble yourself before God and beg for mercy. And if he doesn't give mercy, there's no hope. That's the gospel fork, friends. That's the purpose of the law. And that's why you preach the law in church. That's why you preach the law in evangelism. That's why we tell the world, you're a bunch of guilty sinners. That's step one. Hey, I got some good news to share with you. You are desperately wicked. You want to be my friend? (laughs) But that's it, man. It's to bring us to that fork. Everyone comes to that fork. Every one of you, young people, whether you've been there or not, everyone comes to that fork in the road. 
And you're going to say, forget this, or you're going to say, God, have mercy on my soul. That's the purpose of Jesus saying, here is a standard that you can't possibly convince yourself that you've kept. Who can keep this? No one. Only the guilty cry out for forgiveness. Only the self-righteous reject the need. Only the pardoned will enter heaven. This is the same emphasis that carries on into the matter of adultery. So if you're taking notes, you've got number two, lust. Again, verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, Jesus gives some practical advice. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here again, we should consider another aspect of this statement by Jesus. You have heard it said. The law of Moses is inadequate in that it can only legislate against the outward act. You need Jesus to teach the law of Moses. The law, if you will, of Jesus expands and intensifies the law of Moses, pointing to the birthplace of all sinful action. That's the heart. Such that, the, of course, the wisdom literature rings out. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. To say that the law is inadequate is not to say that it's imperfect. It's to say that it was never designed to accomplish sinful man walking up the steps of righteousness to God. Jesus is the missing link. Now, regarding lust and adultery... I'm going to speak with a measure of um, modesty of speech, but let me speak plainly. The gift of physical intimacy is a gift from God in marriage. He created it for both procreation and joy. Okay, if it was a an absolutely drudging misery to procreate, I don't think we would be so inclined to be fruitful and multiply. And so God in his wisdom made procreation, physical intimacy within the confines of marriage, he made it joyful. It is precisely because this gift is God-given that Jesus seeks to protect it by stating this prohibition on both the act and the attitude of adultery. This is a good gift, a good gift that needs to be protected. Now, beyond getting to the heart of the matter, it isn't just about the hand, it's about the heart. It isn't about the action, it's about the eyes. Beyond getting to the heart, Jesus draws a clear line connecting sight with sin. Sight with sin. 
There can be little doubt, as John Stott said, that deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. That's good. Let me do it again. I'll read it again for those of you note-takers who are feverishly trying to write it down. Deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination, right? That's like the stoking of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. Discipline of the eyes is therefore at least part of the wisdom of application. If your eye, Jesus says, causes you to sin, tear it out. I'm personally convinced that it was after David's fall with Bathsheba that he penned Psalm 101, where famously he writes this commitment, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Because of what what happened? How did it begin? David's chilling on his rooftop, sees a woman, and sees her, and sees her, and sees her. So David says, been there, experienced the painful ramifications I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Now, the word that is translated worthless sometimes is wicked. I will set no wicked thing or shameful. I will set no shameful thing before my eyes. Not bad translations per se, but it's actually a Hebrew word that means profit or profitable. But it has a a negative prefix on the front of it. So like we would say something is desirable or undesirable. There's like an un in front of this Hebrew word, the Hebrew version of un. And so it's not that the thing is wicked in and of itself. It's that to view it is unprofitable. Make sense? So I will set no thing before my eyes that is unprofitable. And so it's important then that we recognize a woman being beautiful in public is not disgraceful or wicked or shameful. Rather, the man is to ask, is looking at this woman in order to lust profitable? And then we go with David, I will set no worthless thing. I will set no unprofitable thing before my eyes. That is to say, if it is any woman other than your wife, the answer is no. Men, should entertain your eyes with your wife, okay? That might be a weird thing to say. I'm glad my wife's not in here. She'd be like really uncomfortable right now and she'd be telling me afterwards, when you're talking about that whole stuff about like entertaining your eyes with your wife, I was getting really uncomfortable on the front row. She'd be saying that. So I'm glad she's downstairs. No, but it is. I mean, it's like you're in marriage counseling and what do you, what do you, what do you say to a husband and a wife? Give yourselves freely to each other. That's how you guard your marriage. Feast men of your wives. Wives, give yourself freely to your husband. That's profitable. It's profitable in safeguarding your marriage. However, men, it is unprofitable to gaze. It's unprofitable, meaning you lose. 
the object of your gaze, she, that woman, she loses. You are degrading her integrity. Your wife or your future wife loses. It's unprofitable. Your integrity loses. Your purity of mind and heart loses. The beauty of God's intention for creating male-female attraction loses, you see. Everything and everyone loses men through the lust of the eyes. This was God's good plan for marriage, for it to be righteously fulfilled, and now you take God's good plan and you tear it to shreds with the lust of the eye. It's unprofitable. Everyone loses. And so Jesus offers practical advice Namely, do not rely on the strength of your will to resist. (laughs) He says, tear your eyeballs out. This is fantastic advice. Run. I had a great conversation, I don't know, it was probably a year ago now with a friend. We're talking about exercising and working out, and he says, do you have a gym membership or do you work out at home? I said, no, I bought the stuff, I work out at home. I don't want to deal, this was the quote, I don't want to deal with the yoga pants, right? I don't want to deal with it. Their yoga pants are everywhere. Why would I go and put myself in a situation where I'm going to have to constantly just, you know what I mean? Just, you know, like, come on. And my friend later told me, hey, that's a good thought. I don't want to deal with the yoga pants. Why would I want to deal with that? Jesus says, tear your eyeballs out. Jesus says, work out at home, dummy. You can, if you can buy a gym membership, you can buy some dumbbells, all right? Why? Jesus does not say, resist with all your might while standing before the buffet of lustful temptation. He says, no. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus said. And it's the opposite of what Paul said to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor outside the arm of his mentor, And what did he say? Flee youthful lusts. Run away, right? In my house and with the men that I mentor over the years, we call this building high walls. So we have high walls of internet security. We have high walls of where we go personally, who we talk to. One time, before the elders were really active and really on it, I got left in the sanctuary with a single woman. She was married, but I got left in here and it was just the two of us. And all of a sudden, I went, whoa, hey, everybody left me, right? And I later had a conversation with my elders, and they watch out for me now. They never let me be left alone. That's like the old Billy Graham rules. Don't be left alone. It's silly. High walls. Do what is physically necessary to remove the potential. Why? Because you're weak. Dummy. It's not complicated. Joseph. Joseph was like this amazing, godly man. And when Potiphar's wife tempted him into sin, he didn't stick around to explain the theology to her. He ran away, naked and innocent. She grabbed his clothes and he wriggled out of them and took off running. Better to lose your shirt and be innocent than to lose your innocence and suffer the consequences. 
And so if you're struggling with your smartphone, get rid of it. They have phones that have no internet access. Alistair says, for some of you, this means taking a 10-pound sledgehammer to your internet devices. Do what's practically necessary to remove the potential because you're weak, dummy. That's just the interpretation. It's like Steve Gomper's interpretation of this. But it's, it, look, Jesus just said, get practical. Do what's necessary. Okay, so men with our computers, um, with... with um, with our wives, there needs to be no secrets. We don't need two bank accounts. She sh- your wife should have unfettered access to your phone and to your messages. She should know your phone password. Like, there's no secrets. Location sharing on. She knows where you are. You know where she is. No secrets. That's called high walls. Develop habits of the hand and the eye that starve the craving of the sinful heart. And the good news, friend, is that in time, those habits will serve you, and the craving of the heart changes. That's the good news. But if you're waiting for magical relief from the temptation to lust, you're just not listening to Jesus. It's not easy, but it's also not complicated. Jesus made it very clear. Listen to me carefully. The only thing hard about this is our unwillingness to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of holiness. End of list. It's the only thing hard about it. And if that's the case, shame on us. Repent and obey. But I will say this. Jesus is right, practical, build high walls, tear out the eye, cut off the hand. But listen, high walls are not enough. We must have a ruthless commitment to desire purity. We must desire to honor our wives or young men, honor your future wife with the activity of your eyes and what you entertain in your heart. We must have a ruthless desire to honor our sisters in Christ. It's my sister in the Lord, not an object of my gaze. And if she's not your sister in the Lord because she's unredeemed, at minimum, she's a sister in creation. God made her in his image, not for your entertainment. These moments of lust never satisfy always leave you empty, guilty, and ashamed. And so by God's grace, may we echo the psalmist and commit to set nothing before our eyes except that which is profitable. In the end, Jesus is again pointing to our need for a champion because we are weak and sinful and we cannot keep this to perfection in our heart, in our mind, even if we managed to do so by the strength of our hand. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. And yet he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So thanks be to God that we have a champion. That doesn't change the instruction for the follower Well, the third area of temptation that we'll consider this evening is in the realm of promise breaking. And that includes divorce, verses 31 to 32, along with breaking of oaths, verse 33 
to 37. I think it's wrong on the screen. Yeah, that's my bad. So it's 31 through 30. Oh, no, that's right. Hey, I, was, I did do it right. All right, good. We'll start there in verse 31. Let's read this and just make a few comments. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now there's a tension here. Um, I can't possibly, I could never dream of, of doing a comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce as a, a single point in a 12-week survey. It, and so there's a tension here. Anytime this comes up, uh, we want to emphasize the necessity of our commitment to marriage, but to do so, sometimes you wind up heaping condemnation on the head of the divorced. But So you compensate by emphasizing God's grace to the divorced, but that can undermine the requirement of keeping your marriage vows. Right? Do you see how that can be a, a challenging cycle for a pastor, or perhaps for a Christian, perhaps for a Christian church? Well, let's just consider a couple of things. Jesus said it in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, severing what God has forged is a serious matter. And the problem is that marriage in our society is not held in very high regard. Even worse, it isn't held in high regard by many professing Christians. When it comes to marriage in our culture, what was meant to be a sacrificial, lifelong commitment has devolved into temporary fulfillment too easily dissolved for the next temporary fulfillment. Um, in 1910, only one in every 10 marriages ended in divorce. By 1920, it rose to one in seven. 1940, one in six. 1960, one in every four. So we're up to 25% now by 1960. By 1970, it was one in three, and today, the statistics are simply that one out of every two marriages, that's 50% of the marriages, end in divorce. That is a simple statistical observation that the value of the oath has degraded over the last century. That's a tragedy that the church has no business contributing now, on the other hand, we need to remove the stigma of divorce in the church for those who had no other choice, were abandoned, abused, or went through divorce and remarriage before Christ or before Christian maturity. Now, divorced people in the church are too often regarded as second-class citizens and are treated as if they have committed the unpardonable sin. So first they live with the pain and the regret of a failed commitment, and then they endure the scorn of the people they're supposed to be the closest to, they're supposed to be able to trust the most while they're on earth. That's a bad rap. And so here's the problem. How do I honor and esteem marriage without dishonoring or defaming those who have experienced divorce? And how do we encourage and affirm divorced people without appearing to minimize the importance of the marriage? of the marriage vow. It's a challenge, friends. What needs to be understood is simply this. Marriage is God's good gift to his creation, not just to his church, to his creation. It is more than a spiritual metaphor. It is for our good on earth. 
Everyone who I know who is divorced, redeemed, or unredeemed admits that there are constant challenges as a result. I grew up in a divorced home with my stepdad. Everyone, if you don't know this, I introduce him as my dad. It's my dad, Greg. He's my dad. He's my stepdad, okay? I grew up in that, and I, I grew up going to different Thanksgivings and different Christmases, and sometimes I'm with dad, and sometimes I'm with my stepdad, and they were yelling at each other on the phone about how many spankings I was getting, right? There's just endless, okay, ramifications. They go on and on and on. And so if that can be avoided, it's good for God's creation. Sometimes it's unavoidable, and for that, God gives grace. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. That's an entire sermon all by itself, those 16 verses. Right? But the good, healthy plan is to get married young, get it right the first time, have lots of babies, fight for the purity of your marriage, honor your spouse, and have no exit signs. That's the recipe. And here's why. Not only is it good for God's creation, this gift, this vow, this sacrificial, you know, in richer or poorer, in goodness or in, in pain, right, in health or in sickness, not only is this commitment good for the stability of life on earth, but also marriage is a picture of Christ united to his church. And any time we diminish the beauty and value of marriage, we mar the image of the finished work of Christ in eternity. And so this is the two-part reason for Jesus teaching his disciples about marriage and divorce. In divorce, almost always, everyone suffers humanly. And in divorce, the picture of Christ married to his bride is undermined spiritually. It's not different than the following teaching on oath-keeping, right? It's not about the oath. It's about the abuses of these oaths and what they do to the message of the gospel. So we'll just read these briefly, just briefly. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus isn't teaching about oaths and oath-keeping just because he wants people to keep their word. It's more than that, friends. Jesus is concerned with the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. Right? There's nothing actually inherently wrong with making an oath, like a wedding oath, right? a commitment to purity. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. To promising to pay back a loan. These things are good. These are oaths. Examples of this are replete in the Old and New Testament. Oath-making. Oath what Jesus is teaching is that he is the truth and therefore his people are to be people of the truth. And by this they would stand out in a culture of lies. They would be distinct in their trustworthiness and in the end, all of this is an aid to the good news of salvation. That Christian who keeps telling me about Jesus is the most trustworthy person I know. 
if he's honest about all of this, then perhaps he's being honest about Jesus. You see? This is Jesus' concern. The gospel. So keep your oaths because the gospel. Now along with that affirmation comes the inverse. Liars make terrible evangelists. Right? So it's not complicated. What's going on with the oaths and the footstool and the head? And Well, we could get into it and I could do a whole sermon on just these few verses. We keep, I keep saying this week after week. But it's about the truth. It's about the gospel. In the end, what we note about these instructions is just simply this. Jesus confronts us at the heart level because our hearts are sinful by birth. We are, they are wicked and divisive instruments. And so Jesus is challenging. He's getting at the heart. He's getting at our intentions, our goals, our desires. And we'll end with this from John Piper. He did not come into the world to assist you in meeting desires you already had in your sinful state. Jesus came into the world to change your desires. And I appreciate that. And I think it's helpful. Well, we'll pause there for tonight, friends. Let's pray, and then we'll spend a few moments together celebrating in prayer what God's doing, what God has done, answering prayer and providing. And, and then we'll also spend a few moments interceding for the needs of our brothers and sisters and for the gospel. And so, Father, we thank you for your word and, and how by it we find practical wisdom what it means to honor you, walk with you, and to be a, an accurate display of the gospel to a watching world. May we apply these lessons for the sake of our own purity and trustworthiness so that when we share the gospel, we're standing on a life, a life of evidence that we can be trusted in what we have to say. And may we pursue holiness not simply with the external of our hand, but with the internal of our heart and mind. And through it all, may we recognize that all of this instruction is meant to bring us to a place of desperation so we cry out for your mercy. And then may that mercy applied enable our obedience. Help us to see. Help us to see clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.